The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 19. I'm going to read a selection of verses from it now before the children's sermon, and we'll read the entire chapter during the sermon proper. Now, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, for he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. And told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. At this time, we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. The story that we just read tells us how Jonathan saved David's life. Do you remember who Jonathan was? Jonathan was King Saul's oldest son. Now, normally, when a king grows old and dies, his oldest son takes his place as king. So if things went the normal way, Jonathan would be the next king. But God had chosen David to be the next king, and that's why it's amazing that Jonathan would be David's friend. I mean, can you imagine growing up, dreaming about being the king, knowing that one day you will be? And then all of a sudden, God tells your father that he's chosen someone else to be the king. A normal person would think, I hate him. He's stolen my dreams. But then Jonathan met David. And he learned that he, too, loved God with all his heart. And that's why Jonathan liked David so much. And from then on, they became best friends. Now, in our story, King Saul tells Jonathan that he wants to kill David. Now, Saul understands that everyone likes David more than they like him. And he thinks that he can't be king unless everyone likes him best. But Saul doesn't know that David is Jonathan's friend. And Jonathan tells David of Saul's plan to kill him. But Jonathan also talks with his father, King Saul. Jonathan reminds Saul of all the things that David has done. He says, David has risked his life for you. He fought Goliath when no one, not even you, would fight. David didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. And when he did, you were very happy. So why are you angry now? Why would you try and kill someone who has done you so much good? Saul promises to to change, and David comes back to the palace. A few days later, the evil spirit from God is making Saul very sick and confused again, and David, while he is playing with his harp like he had done before to make Saul feel better, 
Saul throws his spear at David. He tries to kill David while David is trying to help him. David was able to escape, and the rest of the chapter, which we will read during the sermon, will tell us about another time that David escapes from Saul's plan to kill him. The stories of our Bible verses today teach us something very important. This is one of the most important lessons a Christian can learn. And it's very important that Christian children learn it. Jesus told us, if the world hated me, then they will hate you. David was God's dear child, but Saul was an enemy of God. And because David was God's dear child, Saul hated him. And this hatred is a picture for God's people, for God's children, for us, of the life of Christ. While Jesus lived on earth, what did he do? He told people about God's plan to save his people. He healed people who were sick. He raised dead people back to life. He did many miracles that showed God's love and power for his people. But just like Saul wanted to kill David, the people of Jesus' day wanted to kill him. He never did anything wrong. He never hurt anyone. He never did anything but good for people. And yet they hated him and killed him. David's life is a picture for us of this fact. The children of the devil hated the children of God. And it is always that way. We have to be very careful about who we are friends with. The friendship between David and Jonathan was a friendship based on their love for God. And that's why their friendship saved David's life. When we are friends with the enemies of God, they will try to harm us. Now, maybe they won't try to kill us like Saul tried to kill David, but they will try to lead us to sin against God. They will try to make us love the things that God hates. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because there are other important lessons in our verses that we will learn about. So we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who did of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord, for his name's sake. Amen. I've divided our text into three neat sections which will form our outline. First, we find Saul hatching an evil plan. Secondly, we find Saul putting his evil plan into execution. And thirdly, we find God thwarting Saul's evil plan. And you'll see that reflected in the bulletin, the outline. Now, I suppose many of you have noticed that the Psalms often have titles. The titles inform us of the penman, maybe David, Asaph, etc. Sometimes the titles give us information about how the song was to be played. Sometimes the titles tell us the events that the psalm was written about. Since David was a foreshadowing of Christ, the Holy Spirit used the events of his life as the substrate for the revelation of Christ's work. The psalms give us a peek into these events 
from a different perspective. And I want to make an important observation here. The Psalms often express different emotions than David did at the time when the events occurred. That shows us the divine character of the revelation. David the man experienced the normal emotions that a man would experience in those particular circumstances. But in the Psalms, the messianic aspect comes to the fore. In the Psalms, we see how the Spirit of Christ interpreted the events in reference to himself. Now, I said all that to say this. Psalm 59 was penned by David with reference to this event. The title tells us that when Saul sent to guard his house to kill him. It's called a miktam of David. A miktam technically means a poem. Now that may not be overly significant, but it does infer something significant. Namely, that in the midst of the deep distress and anxiety caused by unjust treatment at the hands of Saul, David is not in a fit of unrestrained emotion. This psalm is not a wild outburst. It is a poem. That is to say, it is an orderly composition that is deliberately purposeful. And that purpose is to give expression to the emotional state of our Lord as he undergoes unjust persecution at the hands of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we'll return to this idea at the close of the sermon. I want to just put it in front of us now. This morning, we're going to put these two passages of Scripture side by side because the Holy Spirit has given us Psalm 59 to display the messianic significance of the events in 1 Samuel 19. We'll also see that Saul's animosity toward David represents a theme that runs through the whole Bible. In fact, it's the outworking of the first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. Heidelberg Catechism, question 37, says that the words, he suffered in the creed, teach us that all the time that Jesus lived on earth, he bore the wrath of God against our sins. Psalm 59 because Christ is the speaker and it because it refers to the events of 1 Samuel 19, gives expression to this. David endured sufferings below the dignity of a slave after being anointed as king. The events of our text are just the beginning. It's going to get a lot worse for David. Now, the Old Testament saints were very sensitive to their external conditions as a manifestation of God's pleasure with them or displeasure. That's why Job's suffering seemed so severe. Everyone who saw what Job experienced was 100% convinced that his sins had finally caught up with him. They couldn't conceive of the idea that God would subject those with whom he was pleased to pain and suffering to exhibit his sovereign care and preservation of their souls. So in a very real sense, the suffering of David is a picture of the wrath of God against his people's sins, but which are borne by David, the anointed of the Lord, instead of by them, the guilty sinners. Sure, Saul hated David and wanted him killed. Sure, the Jews hated Christ and had him killed. But that is the only the, the external human aspect of the events. The true spiritual reality 
was that David was enduring a picture of the wrath of God, which Christ bore in actual fact. David was not suffering because of anything he had done. Now, that's not to say that David wasn't a great sinner who suffered great trials because of his sins, but that in his sufferings at the hands of Saul, he was an innocent victim. He was suffering for the sake of the people of God. David bore the brunt in his own person. And that's why many of the Psalms contain protests of innocence, something David could never assert of himself. Jesus was hated, horribly mistreated, and killed by the Jews, but that was the external human aspect of his sufferings. Their spiritual significance was that he was suffering in the place of God's people. Through his entire life on earth, Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sins. It wasn't just on the cross. I mean, look, Jesus was born of David's royal line, yet he was born in a barn, and his first crib was a feeding trough. He grew up in a carpenter's home. Back then, carpenters were at the bottom of the social ladder. Jesus lived with stories about his mother being promiscuous because it was no secret that Joseph and Mary weren't married yet when she turned up pregnant. In short, Jesus' whole life, not just his passion, was lived under the wrath of God for our sins. So now let's get to our first point, and that may very well be the longest sermon introduction in history. Evil plan hatched, point number one, and let's read verses one through seven. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay at a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in past times. Our Heidelberg Catechism very wisely classifies the whole Christian life as one of gratitude. This is important because the true nature of a salvation by works religion is that of ingratitude. This ingratitude is depicted in our text by Saul's persecution of David. Saul, and indeed the whole nation, owed David a great debt of gratitude. I mean, surely 40 days was long enough to prove that no one could save Israel but God. Neither Saul nor Abner nor any of his senior military officers rose to Goliath's challenge. But God saved his church by the hand of his anointed servant, David. And the entire course of Saul's life afterwards shows the depths of hatred toward Christ that res resides in the hearts of all 
who seek salvation in themselves or in any other way than the imputed righteousness of Christ. You know, we think that if a person, a person with evil plans will always try to hide what he's up to. Saul's example teaches us otherwise. It is the nature of evil, of wickedness, to recruit. Never be surprised when you see the wicked being militant and active. You've never seen America observe a happily married and chaste month, have you? You've never seen an anti-fornication rally. But you have seen Pride Month and you have seen parades celebrating uncleanness that's below the dignity of sewer rats. Saul even tries to recruit his own children into his wickedness. Now, I adverted earlier to the first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. Now, that verse reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is promising there that as long as the world stands... There will be a state of war between the church and the world. But he also promises that Christ, the true king, will triumph by crushing all opposition to his rule under his feet. The enmity between Saul and David is a manifestation of this enmity. This enmity is spiritual in nature. The serpent and his seed hate Christ and his church. At bottom, this hatred springs from fallen man's native hatred of God's holiness. Men resent the fact that they must one day stand before God and give an account of their lives according to God's holy law. They resent the fact that there is salvation in no other name than that of Jesus Christ. And in our text, we see it in the fact that God had used David to effect a great deliverance in Israel And Saul hated him for this. Just as David foreshadows Christ, Saul represents all who oppose themselves to Christ, whether inside of or outside of the visible church. Now let me provide you with more scriptural proof. Genesis 4, 4 and 8. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Genesis 27, 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis 37, 5 and 20. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit. Matthew 21, 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. John 5, 16. The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now, when we turn to Psalm 59, and we see Christ's interpretation of the events of 1 Samuel 19. And in verses 1 through 4, we read, 
Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. Now, David could never honestly claim to be without sin. Jesus could, and Jesus did. Saul's persecution of David was a picture of the unbelieving Jews persecuting Jesus. It was a picture of every instance of hatred expressed toward Christ that has ever existed. Christ has not done anything wrong. He has harmed no one. He hasn't hurt anyone. Yet men hated him then, and men hate him now. You've never heard a man accidentally hit his thumb with a hammer and scream the mayor's name. But you have heard men curse Christ's name. David had done no one any harm. In fact, his whole life had been one of service to his family, his nation, and God's church. And that is precisely what put a target on his back. Now, verse 8 highlights this fact and serves as a transition to our next point. It reads, And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. See, it's not just that Saul hated David. It's not just that the Jews hated Christ. It's that David willingly suffered for his people. It's that Jesus willingly suffered for those he came to save. Verse 8 emphasizes Saul's guilt in seeking David's life. Now, for our second point, the evil plan executed, let's read verses 9 through 17. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. And he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for its head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with the cover of goat's hair for its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? This is the second time that Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. And when this fails, Saul sends men to David's house to kill him as soon as he steps out the front door. But David has two allies in Saul's family, Jonathan and Michal. And Michal warns David of the plot against his life and tells him that he's got to take it on the lamb. Michal puts a mannequin in the bed and pretends that David's in bed sick. Apparently Saul's messengers were nice enough at first anyway to not arrest a sick man. Saul sends them right back to just outright kill him in his sleep. When they find out that there's just a dummy in the bed, they tell Saul. And now Saul gets more actively involved. No more messengers. He comes personally to David's house and has an argument with his daughter. Michal defends herself with a lie. She claims that David threatened to kill her 
if she didn't let him escape. She's lying to protect herself, I'm sure. Now, she's definitely wrong to lie. It is always a sin to lie. There is never, ever a case where it is acceptable in God's sight to lie. But her lie tells us something very important. She believed that Saul was capable of killing her if he thought that she was on David's side. She had figured out Saul's wicked motives in arranging her marriage to David. He wasn't trying to guarantee his daughter's happiness by helping her marry the man she loved. He was using her as a pawn against the man she loved. He was sacrificing her entire future for his own wicked ends. Psalm 59 verse 6 gives Christ's take on this event. We read, At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and they go all around the city. Christ likens them to dogs. Now, that was particularly insulting to Hebrews. Dogs weren't considered man's best friend in Hebrew society. They were unclean animals down there on the level with with rats. Anytime you read of dogs in the Bible, it's never anything flattering. Uh, In Psalm 22, Christ says that he is surrounded by dogs as he hangs on the cross. Now, it's hard to get that sense into English. I mean, we do say things like, you know, mangy mutt, and maybe that's the best we can do, that Christ likens Saul and his henchmen to mangy mutts who do nothing but scavenge in the garbage and spread disease. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, speaks of those who who are forbidden entrance into the heavenly city, that is the glorified church. And John writes, but outside, outside the city, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now this leads us to our third point, the evil plan thwarted. And let's read verses 18 through 24. So David fled and escaped, and went to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seju. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Nioth and Ramah. So he went there to Nioth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? We don't need to go into a detailed explanation of the text to see that God is thwarting Saul's evil plans. David is going to be seated on the throne of Israel, and there is nothing Saul can do about it. God defends David's life by making a public spectacle of Saul. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus made a public spectacle of his enemies, triumphing over them, in his cross. All who conspired against Christ and opposed his work, he publicly humiliated. He made a spectacle of them 
by His cross. That is, by the very instrument that they devised against Him. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, Scripture says. They dug a pit and they fell into it themselves. In Psalm 59, 8 through 9, Christ says, But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, for God is my defense. And then in verse 10, he says, God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. David had escaped to Ramah, which to stay with Samuel, which would seem to be the safest place possible. But Saul no longer has a conscience. He'll kill Samuel if necessary, and he'll enjoy it too. But God thwarts Saul's attempts to capture David. Saul's messengers arrive, and just as they're about to grab David, they suddenly burst into prophetic singing. They can't help it. When Saul hears, he sends more messengers, and it happens again. Now, will Saul remember that this very thing happened to him before his coronation? Nope. He doubles down. In fact, he triples down and sends messengers again, and it happens to them. A rational man would give up. But sinners are anything but rational. So Saul says, no more Mr. Nice Guy, I'm going myself. And when he arrives, God knocks him on his backside in the dirt. Rips off his royal robes and he lies in the dirt in his underwear a whole day and a whole night prophesying in song. There was the saying, if you remember, is Saul among the prophets? Which meant, I'll believe it when I see it. But now that saying has come to mean something like, yeah, now I've seen everything. Psalm 59, though it expresses Christ's frame of mind during his sufferings, it truly exhibits David's thoughts as he suffered. God used the real historical events of David's life as a substrate for the revelation of his grace in Christ. So, though all the words of Psalm 59 are true of Christ, they're also true of David. God gave the words to David to express Christ's work through his own life. And this is where I want to conclude. David exhibits an incredible reliance on God and a peace of mind amid great trials. He never expresses the least bit of dissatisfaction with his lot nor in gratitude to God. Psalm 59 teaches us something important. By its mere existence, in better times, anxiety and depression used to drive people to God and His Word for comfort. We see it in Psalm 59 and many other psalms. Today, however, anxiety and depression no longer drive people to God and His Word. Instead, they're driven to pill bottles or wine bottles. We no longer know how to lean into our troubles to find the treasure of God's comforting hand. As hard as your life may be at times, I think it's safe to say that your troubles are small potatoes compared to David's in 1 Samuel 19. And David's woes are just getting started. Psalm 59 stands as a witness to the fact that a believer has recourse in God and His Word to the greatest source of comfort in existence. That's why the sheer number of professing Christians, particularly women, but also men, 
on meds, on drugs, is astonishing. It would be far better to resolve to read and pray through a psalm every day. Attend church regularly. Change your diet, exercise, confess your sins, fulfill your duties, and so on. Now, I don't dispute that there may be a time and place for some of these meds, but in almost every case, they're actually neutering God's built-in mechanisms for drawing us to Him in our sorrow and pain. There are many exhortations in Scripture to call on the Lord in trouble. The phrase, in my distress, I called on the Lord occurs over a dozen times in Psalms and the books of Samuel. Our Lord Himself, when He was on the cross, enduring agony beyond all human comprehension, He was offered wine and He refused it. He refused something to dull His sensibility. He embraced the pain of His suffering. In Psalm 22, Christ cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that while suffering unspeakable torment, he still addresses the Father as my God. And then he says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him, for He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. David's patience under affliction typifies Christ's and encourages us to always turn to the Lord in our distress. Let us pray.